read now um, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's holy and inerrant, inspired and unchanging word. Let's ask him now to bless not only the reading of it, but our understanding and application of it. Father, we do thank you for this time. I'm struck even now, Father, by your sovereign work in our lives, allowing us, yea, Lord, making us to meet outside in this neighborhood, in this world, and yet having us to read out loud and outside this passage. Oh, Lord, you are good and purposeful. And Father, I pray that the reading and the preaching of this word would not only, not only be striking to us, but even to those who perhaps walking by are just hearing it. And I pray, Lord, that it would strike to all of our hearts instilling its truths and causing us to feel conviction and to repent and to go to Christ for any righteousness at all. Father, I pray that you would bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been exploring the idea of judgment, how to judge, how not to judge, when to judge, who to judge, and the consequences of not judging. I've been surprised, really, by how dominant the theme this really is in 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. We saw last week, last two weeks, why we are to judge within the church a right and holy discrimination discernment uh, and practice church discipline. If you remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, they were wrongly judging, the Corinthians were wrongly judging who's wise, Who's a good pastor? What's a good church based on a charismatic speaker? And Paul says, no, it's one who preaches the gospel and sticks to the word. 
And so he's continuing to kind of confront us on how we are so prone to misjudging and kind of redirect us toward a right and biblical judging. Now again, just to remind us, we all judge. We all stop at red lights and make the judgment call that it's not good to go through the intersection at a red light. That's a judgment call. We all do that in all parts of life. And Paul is just helping us, reminding us how to do that wisely and rightly. Part of the issue is recognizing the right standards to judge by. Are we judging a person, an idea, an event based upon the standards of the world? Or are we judging a person, an idea, an event, a movement, a group by the standards of God's word? What are the boundaries? What are the guardrails through which we make a judgment call on any given thing? You know, you can only play a game correctly if you know the right rules, right? What are the rules that guide you in this thing called life? This is God's world. How do we live it? Here in this chapter, we're being shown that the rules of the world are different from the rule of God and God's people, God's church. The issue, the issue is about contentions that arise within the church, some problem or suit that develops between two Christians And where those Christians go to resolve and settle that issue, do they go to the world and operate according to the rules of the world to settle their disagreement? Or do they keep it within the family, as it were, and settle their dispute according to the rules of God and according to the wisdom of God's word? Now, just to be clear... I want to give three important caveats to how we read and think through this passage. We need to keep these kind of caveats in mind so that we don't misunderstand or misapply this passage. This is a a classically misapplied text of Scripture. First, Paul is not writing off secular courts. He's not saying it's bad to take a case to the county, state, or federal court in our context, right? As, as something Christians should have nothing to do with. Remember, if you don't know, later in the book of Romans, Romans 13, Paul is explicit that the magistrate, the, the ruling authorities, that, that they're good. They are, he says, quote, God's servant for you, God's means to carry out justice on the wrongdoer. There is a court system put in place by the state of which, through God's mediatorial sovereignty, is used for our good. We go to court sometimes. So Paul sees and understands the goodness of state-mediated justice. The, The courts are good, and insofar as they mediate issues in keeping with goodness and justice, we use them. Secondly, Paul is not concerned here with criminal cases. He's not concerned in this passage with criminal cases, but rather with small claims issues, as he says in the passage with trivial issues, you know, like things you'd see on Judge Judy. Don't raise your hand, but who watches Judge Judy, right? A little guilty uh, waste of time there, which means if you've broken the law in such a way that it will land you in jail, if you've committed a criminal act, You cannot turn to this passage and use it as an excuse that you need 
uh, that you don't need the state to get involved. You know what I mean? Like, if it turns out that there's someone physically abusing their wife, abusing their family, what we're not going to do is turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and say, well, we better not get the state involved because Paul says we can deal with this ourselves. No, we're calling the police. And we're, we're going to get the state involved to administer safety to the family first and justice for the crime committed. And then after that, well, then we can meet with the offender who will be behind bars and ask him to repent. I'll go to jail. I will go as a a pastor to the prison and counsel him on what it means to be a Christian husband and a father. And that abuse is not in keeping with Christ. But we only do that after the state has rightly prosecuted justice in this criminal case. This passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is dealing with small claims issues. And, and we see that from how Paul talks about being defrauded. What should a Christian do when he's being wronged? And there's a dispute or some kind of grievance now between two members. Well, simply here, Paul says what you shouldn't do. You don't take him to court. You don't take it outside the church. Which brings us to our third caveat and probably the most important, which is that Paul's not so much concerned about whether or not you take other Christian brothers or Christians to court. Now, you shouldn't do that. This text is pretty clear on certain cases, and that's really bad if you do. But what Paul is really concerned about is how you deal with any given issue that starts within the church, and you take that issue and kind of show it to an outside-watching world. For instance, you can be someone who reads this passage and says, look, I've never taken a member to court. Shoot, I've never even really been to court. And yet, you could still fail to live up to what Paul is calling for here. The issue is really, how do you handle internal family issues? An issue between you and another Christian in view of a watching world. Because how we interact with each other will have a direct correlation on how unbelievers view the church and hence how they view the gospel. You could read this passage and check off the box and say, yep, I'm good. I've never taken another Christian to court. But do you gossip about other Christians and issues you have with other Christians in front of unbelievers? Do you air the dirty laundry of what's going on within the church at work with people who aren't believers at all? I remember hearing ages ago, before I was here, of some issue that arose within the church, here at this church, and and sadly, the issue spilled out into a yelling match and and I think almost a a fisticuffs moment in the parking lot. The previous pastor, Mike Christ, who told me about this account, said when he first came to the church and kind of got to know the members, he would time and time again hear from unbelieving neighbors that, oh, Greenbelt, they're the ones that fight. The church had a kind of bad aroma. And, and Mike said when he came, his, his number one prayer was that the church would be conformed to the spirit of Christ as seen in the gospel. And so that we would be unified 
and that even when we do have problems, because every family does, it would be one that we're able to deal with and not showcase our, our dirty laundry, as it were, to a watching world. What does Paul say in verse 1? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The law courts in the city of Corinth during Paul's day were famous. Not only were they a bit greasy, right? You could pay off judges and kind of bend the law if you had connections. Even more important to the Apostle Paul, the courts were public. Like, like just like Judge Judy today where people watch in to see a show, to see this, this little old lady make grown men look like disobedient children and teenagers. Well, so too did the Corinthian public love to come and watch litigation and lawsuits at the Corinthian court. And to the Apostle Paul, nothing could be more damaging to the gospel. For Paul, I think this, his concern throughout this whole passage is the credibility of the church's witness within the city of Corinth. We've already seen this in chapters 1 and 2. Paul knows that the gospel that he preaches, the gospel that we believe, that that gospel is offensive, right? It, it, it makes no sense to the outside world. He knows that people will only be saved, though, through hearing that offensive gospel given, through the word preached. And that this message, this gospel, it really is offensive to people. And, and Paul's fine with that. He's, he's been teaching us through this letter to be okay with that. Don't be embarrassed about the, the crunchy kind of weird claims of the gospel. He gets that that's what needs to be preached, that people stumble over the truth of Christ and and stumble by God's effectual grace into saving faith, trusting in Christ. But you know what shouldn't cause an offense to the world? You want to know what information will damage our witness and keep people from coming to believe in Christ and in the gospel? It's this. It's letting them see us fight showcasing to all Corinthian or Greenbelt society the ways in which one brother is defrauding another, bringing before the whole city a case of one man committing adultery with another man's wife, letting the whole city watch on as one member sues another member, another Christian, for all he's got because they couldn't come to an agreement. But when that happens, unbelievers say, man, there's, there's really nothing special about them, is there? There's no power in that gospel they keep talking about. Their Savior, he's nothing. You know why I know that? Because they're just like us. Guys, the gospel really is at the heart of this section. And so I want to actually start with the gospel, which means I want to start at the end of this passage. I want us to work through this passage backwards, seeing the logic of Paul's case here, but starting at the end and, and, and working our way back to the top of chapter 6, verse 1. He, he ends with the gospel, but that's where we're going to begin. So first, look, look at the very end of our little section here. Notice the explicit gospel, which Paul points to. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, look, there's a kind of person who will not make it into heaven into the kingdom of God. And, and, and that kind of person is he or she who is characterized by sin. 
He lists here certain sins, not, not every sin, but certain sins, probably sins that the Corinthians were familiar with, that if we give ourselves into them and we allow these sins to be who we are unrepentedly, well, it will bar us from heaven. Or if I could say the same thing differently, if our lives are characterized by sin, any of these sins here, then we are evidencing the fact that we are, in the eyes of God, rebels. We are unrighteous. We've not submitted to what he's commanded. We've submitted to what we want. And what we want is to do these things. And so we are showing that we deserve judgment. Now, to be sure, not many of us can read through this list and come away with a clear conscience, can we? I know I can't. Do not be deceived, says Paul. Those who are sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards, revilers or even swindlers, no one like this will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul's point here isn't necessarily to condemn the Corinthians or even to condemn us, though we might feel the guilt and weight of this passage. What he's doing is reminding them of what they've now become, what their new identity is in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Because he says in verse 11, such were some of you. You were, past tense, sexually immoral. You were an idolater. You used to spend your energy and give all your thoughts to greed and swindling. But now, now that you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, those sins no longer identify you. Even if you find yourself still struggling with those desires or even falling into those sins, no, now, says Paul, you are identified as washed, set apart, and sanctified and even justified in Christ. Look what he says, actually, at the end of verse 11. Washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name, his person is now your identity if you've believed in him. His name is your name. When God sees you, even though you've fallen into sin this week, you, you felt it, you repented, and so now God doesn't see you as sinner. He sees Jesus Christ because it was Jesus who died for you. It was Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and took the punishment for that sin that you committed that week. He died and took the punishment for your adultery. He died and took the punishment deserving of sleeping with the same sex who took the punishment you deserve for worshiping everything and anything else other than God. If we've believed in Christ, then we have Christ in our stead. We're going to spend next Sunday really looking at these last couple of verses next week, unpacking what Paul really means by each of these sins. That's a study that needs to be done. But the point I want to draw out here is that everything else Paul is getting in the verses before, everything he wants to show us in the first kind of eight verses. He's going to say about 
not taking your fellow brother or your sister to court. None of it makes sense unless we realize who we now are as believers in Christ. If we're not sure about our identity in Christ, if we're not daily meditating on what it means to be identified with Christ, right? To bear the name of Christ, to be called a Christian, then we will necessarily not care about how a watching world sees us and therefore how that same watching world sees and thinks about Jesus. What Paul is initially doing in verses 9 through 11 is reminding the Corinthians who they are, who it is they belong to. They belong to Jesus. And as such, the list of sins ought not to be characteristic marks of their new identity. These are the things the world enjoys. These sins are the character traits common to unbelievers, people who've never come into contact with the life-changing power of the gospel, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And if there are people like this within the church, folks who are unrepentant over any given sin and are high-handedly okay with enjoying and going after any of these sins, well, Paul has already told us what the church is supposed to do back in chapter 5, right? We, we've spent two whole weeks looking in detail at Paul's instructions on church discipline and why it's loving to excommunicate a church member, someone who claims to be a Christian, but who is very evidently not living as a Christian. But again, if you are in Christ, then your life is more and more being characterized by Christ, not unrighteousness, which only inherits for you eternal damnation and being cut off from God, but a righteousness which reflects the righteousness of God, and especially so to a watching world. Look what that does to how we relate to one another. Think, think about this logic here. If I believe in Christ and that I've been forgiven of all my unrighteousness and all my guilt because of Jesus Christ, I realize, right, that I've been shown tremendous grace. God has dealt with me in a scandalously loving and merciful way. He's given me what what I don't deserve, forgiveness and a new life. And he's held back from me what I do deserve, which is his judgment, the law to point out my guiltiness, condemnation. And so think about this. If that's true for me, then that's also true for you. Insofar as I see that you are also a believer, right? If you also confess Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in him as Savior and you've been baptized which is essentially the church saying, yes, we see you as a believer in Jesus Christ, and we're going to bring you into this community of forgiven sinners, then that means you've also been shown radical, scandalous grace and love and mercy. Well, then who am I to do to you what God hasn't even done with either of us? Do you see? How can we, fellow sinners, who have been shown such immense grace and forgiveness, turn around and then relate to one another in such a way as if the gospel didn't exist? To not show mercy to another believer, to withhold 
charity and forgiveness and to only want the full force of the law and justice to bear down on another brother for something that isn't even criminal is entirely antithetical to the gospel and therefore contrary to how gospel people relate to each other. Does that make sense? And so this is why Paul in verses 5 through 8 basically says, guys, the, the, the way you're suing one another and litigating in outside courts, it's totally shameful. It's a defeat for you and for the cause of the gospel. Look at, look at verse 5 and following. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. First, notice how Paul uses the word brother four times in these few sentences. He's emphasizing their new identity in Christ and therefore their new identity to each other. This is just a guy, right? Uh, This fellow brother. Uh, It's not just some other guy who's not paid you fully for the work you did in in helping fix his kitchen, right? This isn't just another guy who's taken too long in getting your car back that you lent to him a month ago. This is your brother. This is family. This is someone who Christ gave his life for on the cross. And now you want to sue him? I hope we see this. This is why Paul asks those stinging rhetorical questions at the end of verse 7. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I hope we feel the full gospel weight of those two questions here. I think Paul is saying this. Did not Christ suffer wrong by dying for you? Was not Christ himself defrauded of the praise he was due to instead hang naked and accursed as a criminal for every one of your sins that did deserve eternal condemnation? Paul is applying here the logic and force of the gospel to a very common problem with churches, isn't it? We're so often more concerned with what we're due, with what we think we deserve, with what we think is fair and balanced, rather than loving those around us as Christ has loved us. In 1982, Warren Berger, the chief justice of the United States at the time, he made this very startling observation looking out as he was as a, a, a judge uh, to, to America, looking at the cultural shift. And he says this, quote, One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. He added, Seeking remedies for personal wrongs something that was once considered the responsibility of local institutions other than the courts, are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill a void created by the decline of the church, the decline of families, and the decline of neighborhood unity. 
frequently sadly rhymed. Issues that were once resolved within the confines of a family or a church family are now brought before the county or the state. And we can't help but wonder, at least I can't help but wonder, if there is within our own culture this kind of growing sense of entitlement which correlates exactly to a decreasing understanding of the gospel. A decrease in gospel-centered churches. The late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, a great writer, by the way, if you want to think through legal issues, actually looking at this very passage in 1 Corinthians 6, and let's pray mightily for Supreme Court justices who are okay with looking at God's word for wisdom. He looked at this, and, and Scalia said, quote, I think this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, has something to say about the proper Christian attitude toward civil litigation. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest or a local pastor, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we're too ready today, says Scalia, to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, he says, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. This is wise, helpful advice. And the church, our church, should always be encouraging proactive forgiveness and promoting peaceful reconciliation. I know Don has constantly been um, uh, waving the flag of Ken Sand. Uh, um, uh, whose writings and ministry is all about gospel reconciliation within churches. And we have many of Ken Sandy's books in our bookstall. We want to be a church that is good at figuring out fights and coming to reconciled, forgiven states with one another. Right? So here's a surprise. We're going to (laughs) fight. We're like, we're fallen people. We're brothers and sisters. Who doesn't fight with their brother or sister? And yet we have the spirit of Christ within us, able to now work through it in such a way where the outside watching world says, whoa, I've never done that with my brother or sister. And that's not even their blood brother or sister, to which we say is a thicker blood that unites us, the blood of Christ. I've lost my place. (laughs) Well, I do think it's good to remind ourselves as a church of what Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross, isn't it? This wonderful thing called, you know, humility can begin to develop when we really grasp the gospel. You know, where someone comes to us and says, hey, I know this is a bit awkward, but you did this the other day, this, this thing, and it, and it wasn't right. And, and so kind of out of love, I'm, I'm a bit nervous, but out of love, I just wanted to broach the subject because you really, you disadvantaged me. Pride says, nope, I didn't do it. Don't come at me with that. Who are you? I saw you do this. We're in humility. We can say, oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. You're right. I really did wrong you, and that wasn't good. What can I do to make it up? What can I do to make it right? Or humility, more often than not, takes the route of verse 7. You see verse 7? Where humility says, 
so-and-so really wronged me, but that's okay. I can absorb that wrong and forgive them off the bat without even bringing it up. I can show charity. Like, you know what I mean? You go out to dinner, your friend orders all the things, right? All the drinks, all the appetizers, and you get a $10 salad. That's it. Glass of water. And then they say, let's split the check 50-50. You've been in that position before. Maybe you've done that before. It's not really fair, is it? But insofar as it's a one time, maybe twice, maybe three times, I don't know, seven times, seven times, you can brush it off. You could say, I can absorb that. And if it does become a habit, maybe you do broach it and talk about it with them. This is what Paul's getting at. Because of what Christ has done for us. We can now relate to each other, not as combatants, seeking to get a heads up, seeking to bring the hammer of the law down on my opponent and in the name of justice, get what I deserve. No, but in humility and in Christ-likeness, either take and absorb the wrong ourselves or forgive the wrong done to us, or, and this is what Paul says in verses 4 and 5, Have someone within the church mediate and help you to come to an agreeable understanding. Again, notice the centrality of the gospel here. If if the church is made up of folks who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, that means it's a group of people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, transformed by the spirit of Christ. Well, then certainly filled as we are with the spirit, and growing in in real wisdom. Certainly someone, anyone in the church could help mediate. Can it be, asks Paul in verse 5, that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Now that's a damning question. Remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Corinthians were kind of proud of themselves, right? Boasting in their wisdom. They thought that they were a wise bunch of folks. But they judged what wisdom was, not according to the scriptures, but according to the world, the standards of the world. They thought eloquence and a charismatic personality and fine speaking skills were the real marks of wisdom. And of course, Paul disabused them of such a worldly notion. But here he kind of brings up their haughtiness by essentially saying, I thought you guys said you were wise. Well, then why do you keep going outside the church to settle different cases? I mean, is it really true that there's no one wise enough to mediate what he says are trivial matters and help reconcile these conflicts with the church? You see what Paul's kind of doing there? Which leads us to see what may be one of the most striking parts of this whole passage and where we'll end this morning in verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, look, You guys are capable, very capable of figuring out these little fights within the church and mediating them all by yourselves. If you're in Christ, then you're enabled by Christ, filled by his spirit and led by the wisdom of his word to judge rightly all these different cases, all these matters of grievance. And I know this, says Paul, because God has promised us that we will one day Get this, not only judge the world, but even judge angels. What Paul is doing here 
This is bringing into the equation the full weight of who they are, of who we are in the kingdom of God. We've already seen how Paul has mentioned what it looks like to inherit or not inherit the kingdom of God down in verse 9. That though believers really are citizens of God's kingdom now, we're baptized in Christ, our passports explaining that we are identified with our king, Jesus Christ. We realize, Paul realizes that that kingdom isn't fully here yet. We'll pray this morning. We look around us and it's almost as if we're tempted to think, is there a king? So we talked about last time. We're all just ambassadors. That's what the New Testament calls Christians to be, ambassadors, witnesses for the coming king. And this church is an embassy, an outpost of that future heavenly kingdom. Our sole duty and job, or our preeminent duty and job, is to tell the world, repent and believe before our king comes back. And until Christ comes back, we're all, we're all only mere sojourners in this present fallen world. Strangers wandering around. But when the king does come, and Jesus brings with him the fullness of his kingdom, every person who has not yet repented of their sin, who still identifies themselves as a rebel against Christ, they will be judged. Now again, in love, we tell them to repent before that day comes. We don't want anybody to experience the damnation of that judgment day. It is a final and forever judgment. And just as a caveat, if you're here this morning and you've not yet identified yourself with Christ, if you've not yet submitted in belief to the Lordship of Jesus as Savior, repenting of your sins, friends, Jesus tells us in John 3 that the wrath of God remains on you now and the hammer will fall when he comes back. And so we plead with you. We earnestly are praying for you that you would indeed pray, repent, go to Christ in faith. Cling to him as your only righteousness before God so that when that day comes, Christ says, nope, I've already paid for his sins. He's mine. What Paul is reminding us here is that if we are identified with Jesus, well then, will we not only escape that judgment, but we will also judge along with Jesus. Not just the world, but, but even the heavenly world. The angels themselves. Will read for us earlier from Hebrews and even Revelation where we're told we will rule along with and judge along with Christ. And Paul is saying, church, wake up. Realize who you've been saved to be. You're still going to unbelievers to decide cases within the church? Oh, what sense does that make in light of the coming kingdom? Start practicing now what you will inevitably do when Jesus finally comes back and sets you up as his vice-regent judges. The fact that you're going outside the church, I think Paul is saying, all that shows me is you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and who he is, and you've forgotten who you are in him. And you're foolishly looking to the world for guidance, looking to the world for insights on how to discern. Oh, do you see, Paul is calling the church back to our first love. As we grow in our love of Christ, here's the incredible truth of the gospel. 
We begin to grow to look like Christ, to discern and wisely judge and mediate like Christ. That's good for us. And that's awfully good for a watching world to help them see what it means to be right with Christ. Church, let's do that. Let's be that and grow continually in our Savior's wisdom. Let's pray.